Hi, I'm Becky. And I'm Helen. And welcome to another episode of the Salty Mums podcast. Exploring how as Christian mums we stay the salt of the earth in today's culture with women sharing their stories and wisdom. Welcome to our first podcast. We're very excited. Seems like we've been working on this for ages and it's the time has come. So welcome. If you are joining us, we're really pleased that you can make it. So I'm Becky and I am um, married to Gerard and I have two boys, George and Henry, who are three and five and um, I'm a stay-at-home mum. And I'm Helen. I am married to Phil with um, Samuel, who is eight, and Abigail, who is seven. Um, and I am full-time employed by the church. I'm children's and young families minister. And we just really wanted um, to give you a chance to hear lots of different women's stories, often we have heard, um, we've listened to lots of po- podcasts about motherhood or parenting, um, and there's lots, particularly lots of um, podcasts on parenting from a Christian perspective, but we hadn't heard much about motherhood from a Christian perspective, and we really wanted um, to start a podcast all about that, really, and just get women's stories of being mother, a mother and a Christian. So we've got some amazing people lined up for you. There's um, interesting people talking about race, about pregnancy, about disability. We hope that we've got a broad range that would um, that will suit lots of your kind of interests. So um, pick and choose the ones that are useful to you or listen to them all. So let's get started with the first episode. Hello. Hi, everybody. How are you doing this week, Helen? Yeah. I'm okay, thank you. We're recording just after Christmas holidays, mm-hmm. so back to yeah, back to work, back to school rounds and all of that. How was your Christmas? It was good. And I think the highlight, which is terrible at the end of it, was watching traitors. Have you been watching traitors? Oh yes. <laughs> we love traitors. First episode someone told me to watch and I was like, What? This is rubbish <laughs> and then totally hooked. Yeah, which team are you? Are you team Wilf or team Faithfuls? Oh, I did not enjoy Wilf at all. Like, no? What a sneaky so-and-so. I know. No, didn't like that, didn't like that. I know, I felt, I was thinking about it afterwards and I was like, I'm really not sure, like, sort of, because I know it's a game, but then I was like, actually, it's cheating people out of money. Absolutely. It was really and was quite end, comfortable. like, oh yeah, we understand. I was like, I would not be on <laughs> team understand. I'd be like, get out, you, you absolute traitor. Oh well, we've got a, a guest today who's not a traitor. Although I know she enjoys, <laughs> I know she enjoys traitors because I saw a tweet the other day about it. <laughs> Hi, Chinny. Hello. I do love traitors. I could talk about it probably for the whole podcast. But yeah. I <laughs> Were you team well for team team faithfuls? What well, I, I think, I, I mean, it was just chance, wasn't it? Who got you know? He wasn't actually a traitor. I don't know if this is yeah. spoiling it for anyone who hasn't yet watched but spoiler alert um i think they just you know they were just not they were all equal some of them got tapped on the shoulder that's it and so i think but then he like took it to the extreme and then stole the money yeah i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't behave the way that he did (laughs) my husband and i were trying to work out whether or not they could do it again or whether now like you understand the game too much yeah yeah i'm sure they will do it again (laughs) i I look forward to it (laughs) Well, Chinny is director of Theos, which is a Christian think tank, um, having previously worked at Christian Aid and Evangelical Alliance. She's a regular contributor to BBC Religion and Ethics programmes. And um, we're just really pleased to have you here today, um, particularly to hear a little bit about your um, 
book that you wrote, which is, I think it was last year, wasn't it, that that came out? Well, two years ago now, because we're 2020, yeah, aren't we? Time is <laughs> flying, yeah. 2021 it came out. Um, so, Chinny, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and your family, please? Yes, so I um, am married to Mark. Um, um, I am Nigerian by background, was born in Nigeria, moved to the UK when I was four. Mark is uh, a white English Yorkshireman, um, <laughs> which makes for interesting, interesting cultural discussions. And we've got two <laughs> little boys, um, a five-year-old uh, and a, an eight-month-old baby. So, yeah, we live in southeast London. We go to church in um, uh, Deptford in southeast London. Um, I'm on the leadership team at my church as well. I'm also wow. um, on a few charity boards. So I'm vice chair of Greenbelt Festival and I am on Christians in Media and just joined the Christian Aid board, having left Christian Aid a year ago. So I'm now, wow. now a trustee. So yeah, thanks for <laughs> Not enough, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So you're nearly back to work after your second baby. How have you found the newborn phase and, and pregnancy? Let me start with pregnancy, which was horrific. Um, I am not one of those people who enjoys being pregnant, which is probably mm. why we waited actually yeah, four, four years to try for a second. Um, so my first son and my second, um, I had um, hyperemesis gravidarum uh, the whole mm. way through. So um so with my first, it was pretty bad. And then I was thinking, I was told, you know, you know, it's it's much easier the second time round, but it was worse. And I actually couldn't believe it could be any worse. Um, oh, but it was just, you know, it's, you know, I didn't have it to the extent that some people do where they're hospitalized and on drips and stuff. But um, yeah, it was just, yeah, puking, being sick you, several times a day. I don't know what day. it means. Can you tell me oh, what it means? So, <laughs> so it's, so I think it was, it's basically extreme pregnancy sickness, oh, extreme morning sickness. Um, so it's just being sick a lot. Um, so uh, Princess Kate uh, mm. had it. So I think that's when it became famous and became violence. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's being sick more than seven times a day, basically. So I was probably sick six oh. times a day. <laughs> so I was kind of just under. Um, but it was, yeah, it's completely debilita debilitating. But I worked the whole way through. And it was actually, it was a good thing that we were still kind of in the pandemic. I could work from home quite a lot. Um, yeah. uh, my office was next to the bathroom. So it was okay. Um, but I had, I guess, my most extreme moment was... I was interviewing, no, Rowan Williams for March Fisher of Canterbury was interviewing yeah. me about my book oh. online for the Church Times Literary Festival. Um, and on the morning, I was like, I don't think I can do this. I, I, I was literally just being re feeling really, really sick. Oh, um, but I did it and had to kind of put on this face. This face. Yeah. And literally the moment that we, we finished this interview, I crawled into the living room oh. and my husband drove me to A&E I was so ill. Um, anyway, it was horrible. Um, but um, I guess birth-wise, I um, was determined second time around to have a much more positive birth experience because my first time had been a bit um, traumatic. Mm. No, not, not really traumatic, but it wasn't very fun. Um, and so I did a lot of kind of positive birthing and had a much better experience with the birth itself. Mm -hmm. um, and then in those first few weeks, I, again, I thought, well, this, you know, we've done this before. It should be, mm -hmm. should be much easier. 
And I think I had listened to people who said, oh, you know, it's, it's much easier going from one to two than naught to one. Um, I found it shockingly difficult, just mm. that sense of going back into it after having had a few years mm. off <laughs> um, yeah. and having two where there's, you know, zero downtime. It's, mm. you know, where it's it's one on one ratio, one to one ratio. Yeah. Um, but uh, those first few weeks were really rough. But now it is delightful, <laughs> apart <laughs> from the kind of juggle of being back to work. Um, uh, it's just, yeah, it's really fun. Um, um, a little baby Noah is just so cute. <laughs> He's just adorable. Um, and my eldest is kind of fun and cheeky and is coming out with really interesting stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's a good time now. Those first few weeks were not fun. Yeah, it's it's hard, isn't it? And I I found the t- the one to two adjustment much harder. And everyone's like, oh no, it's it's much more of a shock when you get your first one. But for me, it was constant guilt. I had a baby with colic and reflux and allergies. And um, my my friend, my bestie, she said um, those first twelve weeks, you looked like you had a wild eye, and, uh, wild look in your eye the whole time. And I was like, I did. Yeah, I really did. It's sort of. And it was after those 12 weeks, I suddenly looked at my baby and I was like, oh, well, I do love you. I do. Yeah, you are. I do. You're right. Yeah, you're all right. Yeah. And I loved him at the beginning, but it was like a, a whole other level once everything had calmed down a little bit. And it felt like he wasn't being sick constantly or screaming. I mean, he'd scream all night. We just had to literally hold a dummy in his mouth for hours in the evening just to soothe him. But um, yeah, it's hard. I think that is one of the problems, isn't it, about like sharing experiences with other mums sometimes that you know I had a text last week from a from a new mum about something and I thought I don't I don't know whether it's right for me to tell you what happened for me because it's just so individual isn't it like for me going from zero to one was the worst but I'm not naive enough to think that that's because that is definitely (laughs) the hardest and and yeah I find it really hard to be supportive and share but also like just it's your individual journey like you've got yeah. to find a way that works for you for you haven't you yeah and I, had, I, I think had it's important just to just have, just to listen to people isn't it yeah. um, exactly. to listen to experiences <laughs> and just know and just be able to say yeah it, it's really really hard um yeah and some for someone to understand one thing I really like I talk to my husband about this a lot. I really don't like unsolicited advice as well mm-hmm. from people where it's like, you know, well, you know, you need to do this and this is what happened to me. And it's just like, well, yeah, we've got, we're individual people. We've got children that are different. Um, yeah. What's important is just to be heard. <laughs> I yeah. Think, I had a non-sleeper, yeah. well, a sleeper that would only sleep on me and the amount of, I'm going to say people of a certain generation that used to tell me that all you need to do is put them in a buggy at the end yeah. of the garden. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> times have maybe hopefully moved on yeah. slightly from that and actually I'm not prepared to do that with my child I know if I sleep trained them I probably could get over it but that's not what I'm prepared to yeah. do so all I need you to do is listen to me and hear that I'm tired yeah. <laughs> and it, I think um so we, we, our first baby was an allergy baby as well and I don't think anyone believed us how bad it was and then my mum stayed one night and um, she's like, and he just screamed like for hours. We, we used to get two hours sleep a night, me and my wow. husband, because we had to hold him all night and we were too scared with our first baby to fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd take it in shifts. And um, my mum came, she's like, oh, do you not need to take him to A&E? I was like, no, this is, this is how he is every night. <laughs> this is why we can't lay him on his back and put him to sleep. And she's like, oh, okay, 
okay but um everyone's yeah. walk is just so different isn't it yeah. yeah absolutely yeah absolutely so you quoted an article you wrote about um hg that a survey of more than five thousand women with hg published last year found that five percent of sufferers had terminated a wanted pregnancy because of it while 52 percent had considered termination a quarter of the women surveyed had considered suicide um, and you talk about, like you mentioned now, about it being debilitating for yourself. How how did you get through it? I mean, did, did you feel sick all the time or was it, did it come yeah, in waves? All oh. the time for nine months, um, I guess. And that's partly why it was so... Part, part of what makes it so difficult is the length of time and not being mm. able to see the end of it. So I remember with my first... Um, I think I was at, you know, 10 weeks and I said to my mum, oh, well, at least it will <clears throat> get better in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and she yeah. said, well, it didn't for me. I, I felt like this the whole way through. And oh, when she no. said that, I just thought, oh, I can't, I can't, I, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. I just, the thought of it going on and on and on um, for such a long time. Um, nine months is such a long yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think what got me through it, I think, was... Um, my experience of the first time knowing that it will end and it literally ends as soon as the baby is out like that that kind of like there was no lingering um anything um for me as well like the the smell of my husband (laughs) absolutely horrific I remember thinking I remember thinking I had a curry last night I I put in in place new rules this morning I did not have a curry last night the new rules are shower before bed before like I'm sure they sweat curry. Yeah. It's yes. anyway, and also, he was on this yeah. kind of weird um, low cholesterol diet, so he was eating really horrible things like <laughs> um, uh, you just stinky fish. So I literally I remember coming into the house and just being like, "Why?" And <laughs> 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 he had to eat his dinner outside um, for quite a long time. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking, "Oh, I will never be able to be near my husband again." Um, I was just like, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine it ending because it was so strong the mm. sense of like well I couldn't if I brush my teeth I'd be sick mm. that was almost every morning kind of knowing like I need to brush my teeth but knowing I'd be sick that's a horror yeah. it's just a horrible horrible feeling um but I guess knowing yeah knowing that it would end um but actually at times you know with my second and my first I was like I just don't think I can do it mm. I mm. and, and I, I'm not one of those people I've never had those kinds of thoughts before mm. um mm. where it's so dark <laughs> it's almost like you're in this dark tunnel mm-hmm. um and no one else really understands or well, some mm-hmm. people do um so there's a organization called pregnancy sickness support so i'd go mm-hmm. on there kind of instagram and, and twitter and just look at other people's experiences mm-hmm. also realize that some people have it a lot worse um and still get through it um but it's when people don't understand and i was talking to someone last week actually who had you know, she was a grandmother, but she had had eight children. And I said, oh, were you, you know, how, how were you in your pregnancies? Mm-hmm. Did you feel sick at all? And she said, she said something like, oh, you know, I, I just get on with things. You know, I, I don't you know if I'm sick, then I just get on with it. And I was just like, yeah, but were you sick? She was like, well, you know, I, I just, I'm not one of those people who's just, you know, poorly and then gets, you know, lies in bed. I was just like, no, you weren't sick. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is not sickness. Yeah. It wasn't just feeling a little bit like, oh, um, anyway. So yeah, I got through it just. I just got through it. Just had to, yeah. <laughs> really. Hour by hour, day by day. Sometimes, yeah. Isn't it? yeah. yeah. Do you think there's uh, there's extra pressure on Christian women? And um, you talked about well, the statistics show about this depression that comes with 
the sickness um, and just more generally uh, you know lots of Christian women suffer with anxiety depression do you think that there's um, that there's kind of a, a, a stigma attached to that specifically mm -hmm. in Christian circles about you know how could we be depressed or anxious when we have a God who loves us and who gives us everything we need do you, do you think do you see that mm -hmm. in the church or hashtag blessed we just had a baby hashtag blessed. <laughs> yeah and I, and I guess there is some guilt that comes with that because um because it's so much part of our identity as a Christian women, mm -hmm. often, and um, whether you are able to have kids or not, whether you want to have kids or not, it's so, you know, there, there is this idea of Christian motherhood and motherhood being almost mm -hmm. like the ultimate purpose. Um, so even any flashing thoughts of, I'm not sure I can do this, or this is really horrible, mm -hmm. um, there's a guilt that comes with that. Um, like, I shouldn't have been feeling like that. Um, but also, another part is that I know that there were people I knew who would have loved to be in that situation. Sure. So, mm. so almost the kind of not wanting to feel or sound ungrateful mm, <laughs> about yeah. being pregnant because it was horrible um, for me. So, so there's a there's a silence, silencing I guess about it. Um, there's a not wanting to feel ungrateful mm. for, for mm. what you've been given and you are hashtag blessed mm. Mm. I can so relate to that yeah and do you think the church could be doing more to support women in pregnancy or the early days of motherhood and what what would that support look like if, if you do think they could step up the game a bit <laughs> yeah I think um in so many ways it's in so many ways, churches are really good, um, particularly in those early days of um, having had a baby. So we had a, a meal train, you know, both times, you know, yeah. the church gathering around to provide food um, and to cover the baby, which was really <laughs> nice. But I guess there's almost, um, I, I think it's a space to talk um, mm. about how difficult pregnancy can be. Obviously, it's not difficult for everyone some people really love being pregnant um but a space for being able to talk about it um i wrote in that that article um i think for christianity magazine how i was in the kind of early weeks of um having had my second child i was in a cafe i think i must have looked had that wild look in my eyes or something <laughs> and then walked two other mums with their babies, complete strangers who literally was just like, hello. And they sat with me and um, we just took, we basically just poured out. This is really difficult. How much sleep are you getting? How are you finding feeding? All those kinds of things that actually um, as new mums, um, it's only other new mums who are in that phase that you can yeah. kind of almost feel completely free to talk about those things with. And those women I now see regularly, these complete mm -hmm. strangers that I met in this um, coffee shop. Is this just kind of shared experience? Mm. So I think providing space for those shared experiences, I think actually the church could be a space where um, not just the women in the church, but those outside who are pregnant mm. might be able to come in and have a space to kind of talk and have a coffee with other pregnant women or get advice from others who have been there. Mm. Um, I think increasingly if churches um, could open up their doors to invite people in, in this really crucial time of um, raising families, because those are the times actually when people um, might think about church in a way that they hadn't before. When you start mm. to think about um, your own children and um, values and ideas about uh, almost your own mortality. It's, mm. it's a space where there's, there's, you know, open doors. It would be good for 
the church to be, have an open door for those kinds of people, mm-hmm. um, including pregnant women and including new mums. Yeah, that sounds really good. Because I, I have to say, I'm not not trying to big up our church, but I think we're pretty good at supporting women. And we she's just saying that because I'm the children's minister. Yeah, <laughs> children's and families. Yeah. Okay, um, <laughs> but we one of the things that got me through those first um, few years was we had it's it's kind of fizzled out now, but we had a small group on a Wednesday morning where basically it was meant to be a Bible study group, but we never really did any. We shared a few prayer requests, and that was that was it. But all our kids just came into a room, were contained, and the the mums who had the older kids basically looked after the toddlers, whilst the mums who are breastfeeding could just sit and breastfeed or feed, you know, bottle feed or whatever. And um, it just was a bit of a sanity saver on a Wednesday oh. morning. And like you say, we'd share experience with yeah. me and wisdom with one another of, oh, this is just a phase, which is that really annoying phase, you know, the phrase that people throw at you when your baby's sticking up everywhere. But actually it is really true. Yeah. <laughs> and like you will get through it. And, um, but yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Julia. It sounds, yeah. um, I think we, um, having that space to to be and be listened to and to think of church in a different light sounds really positive one of my challenges I guess in in my ministry is that um I think that we are you know we do support those that we know about really well it's those that we don't know about Mm. in communities where mothers are shut in flats because they have no support network they they can't make it to church or they can't make it to a toddler group Mm. that's my kind of constant challenge in my head I think we're great for those that we were on the top of the hill near the town yeah. centre. Great yeah. for those that can make it up the hill, but yeah. what, what about those that actually are so debilitated by depression or sickness or whatever that actually they can't mm. they can't make it anywhere? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So moving on to your book, God is not a white man. Um, so <coughs> I read your book over the summer. And I was immensely challenged by it. I feel like I could talk to you all day about it, to be honest. Um, but we really wanted to focus on, because it were the salty mums, the issues it raises for you within the context of being a mum. Um, so just for people who haven't read your book and or are sort of new or even struggle to come to terms with the idea that racism exists within the church, what damage has the traditional image of God as a white man, you know, often with a beard in the clouds or white Jesus um, that we see in religious art done to perpetuate racism within the the church? Okay so when I'm talking about the church I actually mean the white majority church in the UK but also actually um, the church globally so if you look Mm. at um, most people when they picture Jesus Mm. or picture God they will imagine a white person Um, and that is true of white people and black people because yeah, the images, yeah, the images are so pervasive around the world um, mm-hmm. that most people think of Jesus as white. I think there's sometimes a danger in some people think that Chinese people see a Chinese Jesus, black <laughs> people see a black Jesus. That is not the case. Um, obviously, there are examples of. Um, uh, Jesus and God being depicted in different cultural forms. But I write in the book about um, uh, a, an image called The Head of Christ, which is by an artist called Warner Salmon, an American artist in the 50s, who drew this image of Jesus, which kind of looks like an American high school mm. uh, yearbook photo. Um, and that image has been reproduced around the world a billion times. Ooh. 
So it can be found in the homes of um, Christians in India, in Nigeria, everywhere. Um, and some people think I kind of over-egg the point <laughs> about um, the images themselves, but almost it's, an, it's a way to describe um, how pervasive white culture or whiteness is mm -hmm. in Christianity in a way that is not, we almost don't notice. Mm. Um, so Jesus wasn't white. <laughs> That's mm. basically the fact yeah. of it. Jesus mm. was brown. Um, Jesus was from the Middle East. So why is it that yeah. um, we, most people imagine Jesus as white with blue it's eyes so wrong, and sandy hair? Yeah. When you speak about it so simply, yeah. it's just it's so wrong. And we're living yeah. in like 2020 three now and yeah. why is nobody and it's not and it's not even the fact that just jesus wasn't white hardly anyone in the bible is yeah. white <laughs> so right. it's yeah. not, not yeah, just yeah. jesus mary moses all of them mm. pretty brown um <laughs> but so so it just tells you about i sometimes say white supremacy some people like to say white superiority but this idea that whiteness is mm. better um mm. than other things and therefore obviously jesus is white and obviously god is white um they're not so so i look at the images but the point is not the images themselves mm. it's the fact that um there's this kind of pervasive uh whiteness um white, white theology white culture white ways of doing worship mm. um that is so pervasive across the church so that's that's kind of my point and i explore that through and yes, a chapter on art um, mm. and the idea that God is not a white man, but also through, I look at, there are other chapters on kind of education, mm. um, the sisterhood, so women, mm. um, black women and white women, um, through international development, um, and then through, I guess, the church. So I just talk about the idea that ch the church should be like a mosaic in which mm. actually there are loads of different pieces, lots of different colors, different shapes and sizes, they kind of uh, don't look like they should fit together, but if you stand mm. back, they are this kind of beautiful picture um, and beautiful tapestry. So, so yeah, that's 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 what I talk about in the book. Amazing. Yeah. And it seems from the book that you, you kind of came to the idea that these structures of racism and inequality in the church that happened for you later on in in your life is that was there a trigger or was it kind of a general realization of that or or, or was it something that you've you've thought for from for a long time. So it's one of those things that when you see it, you then can't unsee it. And then you look back at <laughs> things that have happened since I was a child um, mm. that, that I realise were a result of, I guess, racism in the church. Now, I've never experienced kind of, no one's ever called me the N-word. No one's been kind of overtly racist at all to me ever in my life. Mm. Um, but it's the um, what we call microaggressions. So the subtle mm. ways in which... Mm. I'm either a black black people are either seen as other or talked about as other. So, for example, when we were uh, when I was you know young, we I've got two sisters, mum and dad. The five of us arrived at a church um, in Hertfordshire, and someone on the welcome team was like, "Oh, welcome, welcome!" <laughs> and she said, before we'd even sat down, she said, "Oh, what made you choose?" this church today rather than the black church down the road oh my goodness and i was like we we're like oh we didn't know we had to go to <laughs> so we had to go to black church because oh we're black goodness. um and so what that obviously that tells you lots about i guess racism in the church mm. it's i'm sure she didn't i'm sure she didn't mean it i'm sure she didn't realize that she was no. being 
racist, but that's what, that's what, that's what yeah. she's been. Um, and this idea that it, somewhere in her head, she thought white people go here and black people go here. Mm. Um, and that should, just should not be our, our experience mm. as the church. We're, like, we're supposed to be the opposite of that. Mm. Um, in many ways, the culture is probably um, more, I guess, ahead on this issue than the church is. Mm. Um, and also, not to kind of go on, but I think there's so much of it within our history as the church mm. um, that is still causing us problems. So the missionary mm. movement, mm. this idea that kind of white people um, take the light to those kind of dark places mm. around the world, even though Christianity didn't start in England, didn't start in mm. Europe. Um, the, uh, yeah, so the kind of missionary movement, but also actually one thing that I found really difficult in the research for my book was discovering that theology um, played a part in, I guess, putting forward this idea that black people were less than human mm. or were not in the made in the image of God, like um, white people were. So there were literally, you know, theologies mm. or theological thoughts, theologians putting forward these ideas. Now that is horrific. Mm. And these things weren't even that long ago. So kind of 1900 we're talking about. Um, so we need to recognise that we haven't, there are still some kind of vestiges of those kinds of mm. thoughts in the back of people's minds. And actually, we need to confront them. We need to do our best to try and overcome them um, because we've still got a long way to go. I think also it's really important to say that we need voices like yours because yeah. I was actually listening to a podcast this week and um, and um, that this, this lady was talking about going into um, American churches and she said, never before have I seen so many American flags <laughs> as mm. when you go into an American church. Mm. And she said, you know, the people there, they weren't overtly saying that it, this church was for from Amer for Americans. It was just a kind of, in a way, it was a kind of a thoughtless, we're American, we'll put a flag up. But she said, going in as somebody that wasn't American, yeah. her immediate reaction was, maybe this isn't for me. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it, it sometimes you don't, you don't see it, do you? So my, my experience is more in, in disability and the work that I was doing beforehand. And talking to people with disabilities in the church was really eye-opening because suddenly you start to see the church as they see it um, and things that we sort of thoughtlessly do. And, you know, things like um, working with people who had sight loss, for instance, um, they're like, you know, if you walk into a church and there's no large print things for you to use that immediately tells you that you're not welcome in that church yeah. or if yeah. there's no ramp for a wheelchair or <clears throat> you know if there's a long academic sermon every week um you know it, you're not welcome if you've got learning disabilities and it's yeah so it's really important that we educate ourselves and start to see through other people's through people's eyes yeah yeah and it could only you could only become aware of it through relationship Absolutely. with people and through talking to them and getting to know them i've realized you know in kind of a lot of the work i've been doing around race in the church i i often think about actually i don't have um friends with disabilities so mm -hmm. i often don't think about things um, um from their perspective because i don't necessarily know what the world is like for them i know this is really trivial but just a small um a small taster of this with um when you're pushing a buggy around in, in London yeah. and you realize, oh, there is, yeah. you know, this, this, this whole space is not very accessible. I've got to work harder to try and find 
my route to a certain place there are places where I literally can't go because um can't push the carry the buggy down the steps or all those kinds of things and then you start to realize oh right this is I've I've got to I'm experiencing this for this little bit to these few few months actually there is so much that we just don't realize um that you don't realize unless you are someone with a disability for example so I think that's the same with with race um you need to have relationships with people who are of different races to understand what the world is like for them um Absolutely. and what are the things that you you can't see um, because mm. you're not you know you're not them and be open about that as well you know yeah to not, learn not just having black friends for the sake of having black friends but being open about you yeah. know what are the things in our church or in our yeah. society or whatever that, that you feel that are difficult for you or... yeah which can be difficult to handle can't yeah, it because you actually it sort of yeah, you have to sort of... If I've got friends who are black and I'm not like, I don't want to be like, well, you're black, tell me what it's like to be black because yeah. in my mind they're not black or I'm not what, you know, yeah. we're just yeah. friends, we're yeah. just people. But it's interesting that you're saying that, yeah, actually yeah. That's, that's important. They're important conversations to have. Absolutely. So you've got two boys who are um, who are black. What are the challenges um, or the greatest challenges of bringing boys who are black up today? Sorry, it's a big question. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I often think about um, the talk that a lot of Black American parents have to have mm. with their Black sons mm. about how they should behave if they are um, stopped by the police, how mm. they should walk, what are their legal rights, all those kinds of um, discussions that people have to have with their children whether they are rich or poor, um, mm. they are still black young men mm. who, for some reason, are seen differently from their counterparts who are mm. um, white young men. Um, now, I thought, I often think, well, that, that's American, I probably don't need to have that talk here. But actually, just in case, <laughs> because mm. um, black men have been killed by police in the UK, <laughs> Obviously, I want to do all I can to protect my child, um, mm. to protect my children. So I will probably have those talks. Now, my eldest is five, and I, I've already am having to have these conversations because he said to his dad a few weeks ago, um, "I, I wish I was white." Oh. And literally, oh. <laughs> yeah. I just thought, where has, where has that come from? Yeah. Um, we live in an area where there aren't many uh, black and brown people. So he's probably one of only a couple in his class. Most of his friends are white. Um, so he is seeing something or hearing mm. something that makes him think it's better to be white, even at that young age. Wow. Um, so um, we uh, I write in the book about how, you know, when he was, I think he was two, um, he said, he was really obsessed with colours. Um, so you'd say, you know, what colour is the sky? And he'd say, blue. What colour is the sun? Yellow. And then we said, um, what colour is mummy? Brown. What colour is daddy? Pink. Um, what colour are you? And he said, grey. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we were like, oh. Um, <laughs> the way he said it was like, he sounded really disappointed. Um, he was like, oh, I'm grey. Um, and his dad said, um, you're not grey, you're golden brown, right? Oh, and his oh. eyes lit up and he then, golden brown, basically became his favourite colour 
and brown became his favorite color um and there was this kind of sense of you know the specialness of being golden brown uh, so that was when he was two but now he's at school so he's hearing these other other things about I don't know I don't know what he's hearing but there's something in him that feels disappointed so we've got to now work hard to try and so yeah my husband kind of was straight on the email to the, yeah. to the teacher <laughs> saying, why does my child say this <laughs> yeah, can you do something about this and, and the teacher emailed back and said you know in circle time we talked about how everyone's different and how everyone's special so so basically yeah we, we are constantly um now thinking about race much earlier than I thought we would have mm. to um with our children yeah I'm, I'm gonna admit to like something that right now which i i felt well yeah i feel i felt so upset about it at the time but my well yeah the incident so we had yeah so we we had an incident the other way and i was so upset about it because i was like i don't i don't know where this has come from um but my little boy had started school and he came out with this thing that he didn't like a little boy in his class because he had a different color skin to him now there's lots of kids in his class who are it's a real cultural mix at his school and I I mean I marched straight up to the teacher and I was like I'm so sorry it's nothing to do with us I promise you and she her explanation was that actually they've fallen out and he was looking for something different between the two of them and that was the only thing that he could identify um and it was but it really, really upset me. And I bought a book on diversity from <laughs> Usborne really and sat him down. And I was like, Poor this kid. is not like, <laughs> this is not okay. <laughs> like we don't talk about things like this. Um, and, you know, we do, you know, we're, we're, all, we're all different and have different, yeah. But um, yeah, from being on the other side of that, it was, it was really, really tricky and it was, yeah, I mean, we've never we've never really talked about race, but maybe that that was part of the problem is that we hadn't talked about race at home. Bearing in mind he was only four, but um, <laughs> but again, that we didn't hadn't thought of that, and to to think about that as an issue, I just thought, and probably in quite a naive way, oh, they're all colorblind at that age, they don't see these things, but actually he'd identified it as a difference. But yeah, I think it was just a falling out, but um. I think it's really tricky, isn't it, just to find the right time or age to talk about it, because um, at our school, at my son's school, they had a show racism, the red card day, so they all had to wear mm. red, right, and, and our children were four, you know, our child was four at the time, and I'd speak to mm. some of the other mums who weren't happy about it, um, because they're like, you know, it's too early to talk about race, and I was like, actually, it's probably... I mean, my son's already thinking about race, and he actually doesn't have the luxury to not, not think about it, mm. Um but I remember I was like, okay, well, now let's talk to you about it. And I just explained. First of all, I had to explain what football was and what a red card in football was. <laughs> and then why, why you show racism in the red card and what racism was. And I kind of said, you know, racism is when you don't like other people because they've got a different color skin to you. And he just went, mm. why? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's yeah. it's ridiculous, isn't it? Um, but it felt it felt early, but actually he's already hearing things they mm. already notice that people have different color skins um it's about um i guess being showing that as a positive rather than a, a reason to dislike other people who are different yeah i had a similar experience with my um little boy who when he was in year three um he came home from school and said mommy i think i learned my first swear word today and i was mm. like oh here we go you know it's going to I won't swear just in case yeah. people are listening with children now, but it's going to be something 
mainstream. Anyway, no, the, the word that had been taught to him by his uh, friend sitting on his table was the N word. <gasps> and oh, I went absolutely crazy. Oh my <laughs> not at him. I tried to control myself because we'd always said, you know what, if you're not sure what a word means, ask us, we'll tell you so that you never ever use it again. And so I did very calmly <sighs> explain to him Number one, what it meant and why you should never, ever, 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 ever hear that word or say that word or do anything mm. else with that word ever again. Um, and he's he's questioned me after I'd done my stand on my chest and very calmly but very firmly Family, say, yeah. don't ever use yeah. that word ever again, was, but why would somebody say that to someone with a different colour skin? Like, yeah. that, that's not even a thing. And I was like, yes, don't yeah. ever lose that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But the sad world is that you know he will grow up yeah. to know that that is you know yeah. that is something that happens and, yeah. and 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 I just yeah hope and pray that you know they're never part of racism. But mm. um, yeah, I would recommend a really good book called "Bringing Up Race" by Uju Asika, um, which is all about how to talk to your children about race. Um, so yeah, love it. That. I'll make sure that goes in the show notes as well, so people can find it easily. Super. So um, in, in your book, you, you write about and you've already mentioned the fact your husband is white and um, there are highs and lows of being in an interracial marriage. Um, but being parents now in this interracial marriage, um, has that has that increased your sense of um, the need to break down cultural barriers or um, have there been extra cha- challenges about being parents, one of whom is white and one of mm. whom is black? Yeah, so this is something, even when we were dating, before we were engaged, I used to, like, quiz Mark on, what would you do if, what would you do if a teacher at our son's school said this? Or what would you, what, what would you do if our son said they wanted to be white? Oh, Jesus, is he black or white? <laughs> <laughs> so um, even from before we were married, it's almost like, you know, he had to think about race in a way that he would not, ha- not had to before. Um, or if we were in different places or visiting um his small town in east yorkshire and people would say some racist things to me he was like oh right the world is the world is racist mm. um uh so i guess we we talk about it quite often we talk about race quite often uh, and what i'm noticing actually since our son has started school my, my husband's a social worker children's social worker um so he is very aware of um the challenges faced by um young black and brown people mm. in education and the wider um i guess social care and uh social uh, society mm. he is very very on it in terms of like pulling up teachers or um uh, making sure that he has he basically talks about the fact that he never wants any other teachers or anyone in authority to think that they will be able to get away with <laughs> being <laughs> in any way racist to our children so he's Mm. almost like trying to scare them preemptively um which i think is good and he does it in a way that makes me kind of like oh i'm a bit like oh don't don't Mm. don't say anything but he's really (laughs) on it because he wants the world to be better you know i don't think it's like challenging being in an interracial marriage i think it's kind of interesting or there are just interesting Mm. different challenges um about two cultures coming together how different they are but I think a lot of people face that regardless of whether Mm. they're both you know the same color or not we're British that husband is on a different planet introverts extroverts all those um northerners southerners um I I think private school yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so I think there are interesting challenges 
um, that we that we navigate. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting being being parents now and seeing how that that is playing out in that that regard as well. So you mentioned the book. You think it may take centuries to unpack a lot of the racism built into the church, but what are your hopes and dreams for your boys with regards to the the church and and race in their lifetime? Well, I first of all, my number one hope is that they will be in the church. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, before we get to kind of the race question, I'm often thinking about how it is you know I don't want to indoctrinate my children I also want them to grow up in the faith that I have that we have um so how to do that sensitively um I am even at this uh age trying to um you know pull them up if they you know suggest that God is a, a man because God think God is a man um and God is white like trying to you know that seems to be already in my eldest's head um so even trying to ch challenge those kind of the images um but I hope that when they are um my age or even you know when they're in their teenage years I hope that they will see that the church is um ahead of the rest of society when it comes to race and mm. racial justice rather than behind and I think what that might look like is in um I want to see fewer churches in which it's got only white people and only black people if they're in diverse areas. Mm. Um, I want there to be diverse leadership. I want there to be worship music that comes from different cultures. Um, I want there to be increasingly um, theologians who are um, black, who look like them. Mm. Um, I want them to believe and understand that the church is their home, um, mm. not some other place that they are invited into or mm. that someone would ask them when they're at the door um why did you come here because this is a church for white people so um all those hopes i'm sure we can you know we're much closer to that than we were obviously 50 years ago mm. um it's not like we haven't advanced at all but i i, I think there's quite uh, a bit more of a journey to go because mm. there's an, an acknowledgement in the church of england which is the church um we're in um from justin welby now isn't there that there's there is institutional racism i know there's some voices questioning that <laughs> we won't go there um but um yeah that's really really interesting and how how can we as um listeners the the mums in church be better allies to yeah the, the black community as such within the church yeah yeah, I think again, it's about its relationship is mm -hmm. is the key. Um, I think it's um, it's being friends with people who aren't like you um, or who don't look like you, um, because it's life is more interesting when that when that when that happens when you get to kind of open your eyes to how other people are, what the challenges that they experience, how you can share life together. In doing that, I think that eventually breaks down the prejudices or the walls that there are between people or the assumptions that are made about people that aren't um, like you. So I think um, relationship is key. I'd also say that um, one of the reasons why we're still having this conversation, I think, so for example, the Church of England has done, I think, 30 reports on race over the past wow. 35 years or something. So obviously, 
and often people try to do something about it but we kind of get stuck and you don't kind of necessarily mm. move forward so and we're still talking about, about it, it. <laughs> yeah we like write a new report and we say oh yeah there is institutional still racism happening. still <laughs> happening um a writer called emma davery wrote a book called what white people can do next and in it she says that part of the reason why we haven't moved forward on this conversation is because we haven't told a compelling enough story about race and racial justice mm. it's not just that people white people should feel sorry for black people and want things to be better um, and therefore give up their their power in almost this kind of charitable um, way. Yeah. Um, it's about telling a story where there was a realization that the world is better for all of us mm. if black people aren't shot in the street mm. or the world is better for all mm. of us if there isn't prejudice against black people because there, there could be their prejudices uh, against other people. So telling a more compelling story and realizing that this is these are all of our children, um, not just mm. kind of um, black people's children, yeah. um, I think would help to change the situation. Um, thank you so much today for today, Chinny. Um, you can find Chinny's, we can find more information about Chinny on her website, Um We'll put her link to her book on the show notes. She's also written a second book, which again is a whole other topic. Um, and I didn't realise until I was doing some research the other day. <laughs> um, um, but the title for the one that we've been talking about today, once again, is God is Not a White Man. And you can find her on Twitter at Chinny McDonald. Um, just really quickly finish with a quick prayer and just to thank you and bless you as you go on your way, Chinny, if that's okay. Dear Lord God, we are so um, grateful for Chinny. Um, and, and Lord, that, that phrase that she used a while ago, we pray that the church would be ahead of the game on racism, mm -hmm. Father, that um, that throughout church buildings across this whole country, Lord, that, um, that never would a white person or a black person um, or anybody else in, in between, Father, never would they not feel like they can, they can walk into your church, Father. Mm -hmm. And Lord, um, as listeners, we pray that you would help us to work out our part in that, Father. If there's um, friends that we can get alongside, if there's people we can get alongside and get to know, would you put mm -hmm. those people in our paths? And Father God, would we would we all be better mm -hmm. at, at being aware of, of racism in our communities? Mm -hmm. Bless Chinny and Mark and the boys. Thank you for all of her work and um, all of the various things that she does um, mm. to support this um, such important work. Father, would you just be with her and, and go before her? Mm. Amen. 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 Thanks so much again. I want to stay all day with yeah, you, Chili, you. but you've got like loads of other jobs. Yeah. So <laughs> you better go do some. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Uh, that was absolutely amazing, wasn't it, Becky? I, I so enjoyed. I could have spoken to her all day. I know. Yeah, it's just made me remember the importance of being relational with people and finding out their story and just seeing things through through their eyes really. And we yeah, we can't recommend her book enough as well. I think um for anybody that's kind of interested in this or even maybe if you're not and maybe you're feeling like maybe you you want to be more informed then yeah, I definitely recommend having a read of her book. Yeah, and what a powerhouse she is. All those jobs. It's amazing. I can't seem to get my kids dressed for school in the morning. I'm going to stay at home, mum. It's so true. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and hope to see you soon. Bye. Remember, all the links that we've talked about today can be found on our show notes. 
If you've enjoyed the podcast today, please do remember to hit subscribe if you haven't done already. And even better, you can help us reach a wider audience by giving a quick review on whichever platform you're listening on. See you next time. Bye. Bye.